we like to think that we don't challenge God. After all, we are reformed and we believe that God is sovereign over our individual lives, over our nation, and over the world. He is God. We are not. But we do always, but do we always respond in, the, uh, in a way that, uh, to situations in which we find ourselves? Have you never asked God, God, what's going on? Have you never wondered why God has not used your parenting skills to keep your children in the faith? Have you never asked yourself, what is God up to here? Why is He allowing this to happen to me? Well, questions like these are just indirect demands holding God accountable to you. Isaiah 45, 9-25 begins by holding God accountable. Alec Mottier makes this comment as he begins commenting on this section of Isaiah. He writes, and I quote, In relation to the Cyrus plan, this criticism was inevitable. What can the Lord be thinking of by destroying our hopes? How can He ever bring it off by using a conqueror to liberate? For by using a Gentile conqueror to liberate Israel, it was not only the pride of the nation that was threatened, but the Lord's promises. Under a Gentile liberator, the people would, in principle, return to the same situation from which they had deported. The times of the Gentiles would continue in Jerusalem. There there would be no sovereign state, no Davidic revival. The Cyrus plan was the death knell to all such hopes. Well, our passage begins with two ironies, two intentionally sarcastic questions that should elicit laughter were they not describing reality. From there, the passage describes the right of the Creator. Finally, the Lord focuses on the salvation which will come not only to Israel, but to the world. So look with me then at the sovereignty of God as absolute, and therefore the sovereignty of God in delivering His people Israel, and the sovereignty of God in saving a people for His glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do give you thanks as we think about this portion of Isaiah and we ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to embrace all which you teach us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. First, let's look at the sovereignty of God as absolute. The passage begins, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or, Your work has no handles. Actually, E.J. Young translates this better. What are you making? You have no hands. It's accusing God of not being able to make anything. The very thing that the potter had made asserts that it has no hands and cannot make anything. A statement that's absurd, which is the whole point of what we're reading. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? Now the first word in Isaiah 45, 9 and 10 is woe. And that word is a word of lament. 
In other words, the situation is dire. Not only are the people asking the wrong question, they are insulting God. The questions imply accountability on the part of God. And we do this, don't we? How often have you said, Oh God, why? I think it's part of our fallen condition to express ourselves in this way. Well, the potter is sovereign over the pot. Look at the image. A pot. Among other pots. Speaking to the potter. Imagine that. Ecclesiastes states this thing about the king. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. Who can say to him, what are you doing? Well, if if Ecclesiastes, if the writer could say that about a king, how much more is that true about God? And the next question is just as ridiculous. In fact, the father can't even answer it. Neither can the woman. Why does it say woman and not mother? There's two words. You could use mother in the Hebrew, but the word woman is chosen. And, you know, why would he do that? Well, there's several possibilities. Possibly it means mother, and that's what we should understand. Uh, Possibly, and maybe more likely, it's meant to avoid the connection with the gods of the ancient world who had wives who conceived offspring. So God says woman instead of mother. Uh, Possibly it's to avoid the idea of a mother god, which was prevalent in their world. But the thought is an absurdity, and that's the point. It's as if God is saying, you're asking the Creator and the Lord of heaven and earth why I'm doing what I am doing, and that's just as absurd and ridiculous as a child asking his father, why did you give birth to me? I mean, think about the image. What, what did you beget? When would a child say, what did you beget? When would he say that? When he got older? You know, or, or what will you beget? I think it's in the future. So, what, what, what's happening? It's like, there's not even a child there to ask the question. It's an absurd question. A father has no control over what children... He doesn't know if it's going to be a boy or a girl. He doesn't know anything like that. So if God's sovereignty is absolute, we should be careful in daydreaming about life, right? Being, uh, being different than it is. You know, I'm guilty of this. I oftentimes sit around and think, you know, if I'd only been brought up in a Christian home. You know, why wasn't I brought up in a Christian home? That's kind of like asking, you know, why did you beget me? Uh, You know, or if I only had not been a drunk, or if I would have, you know, been, and just fill in the blanks. We all do that. We're all guilty of that. It's just, it's absurd. We didn't have a say regarding when we were born. We didn't have a say regarding where we were born. We didn't have a say in what gender we were. We were born that. We did not have a vote on whether we would be PhD material or high school graduate material. Not every, you know, not everybody has the same abilities, right? 
I mean, I always wish that I was, you know, some kind of a math genius, you know, that, that I would have been one of these 16-year-old prodigies that went to Yale or someplace to study math and, you know, been brilliant and, you know, like Stephen Hawking or something like that. But then I look at Stephen Hawking and I think, well, I wouldn't want to have been like that. But you see, the point is, um, you, you're all, we think about what, you know, why can't we be like this other person? Well, we're not like that other person. God is sovereign. He made us what we are. Why can't we accept that? You know, some people are, born, are prone to carry more weight than other people. Now, I'm not saying that we sh- I should, you know, I'm, I'm talking about myself here, but I'm not saying that I shouldn't be careful and that I shouldn't try to lose the weight that I need to lose, but the point is, I have a body that for some reason is, has a propensity to um, accumulate weight, and it doesn't, matter if, it doesn't matter if I eat less than somebody else. My friend that I knew in Denver, that I named my son Mark after, he's a good friend and I, and I love him dearly, and he's as thin as a rail. He can eat me under the table. But I have one piece of pizza, gain a pound, he eats a whole pizza and loses weight. I don't understand that. Well, because God is sovereign. He made me what I am. He made you what you are. And we can't go around asking that kind of question because it's absurd. It's difficult. But we're called to submit to a sovereign God who's sovereign absolutely. He's the potter. We are the pot. We are the clay. He's the one who forms us. And He does have, not really, but He has hands. He's able to do it. He has the ability to make us what He wants. That's what Paul says in Romans 9, what? Isn't it? Does not the potter have the right over the clay to form one vessel for honor and another one for dishonor? Is that not the right of the potter? And the answer is, of course it is. And I have no, I have no right to call it into question. If I cannot question the king, then I dare not question the sovereign God. And yes, it is difficult sometimes because we live in a fallen world. I was just thinking, maybe it was while Joffrey was reading or something, but I was thinking about the fact that, you know, in reality, we really are dust. When you think back to the fall of Adam, God says to Adam, you know, the day you eat of it, you're going to die. And he says to him, you are, uh, um, you're, going to, you're going to die. You're going to return to dust because from dust you were taken and to dust you're going to go. Right? We're dust. That's what we are. But we're being created in the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're being recreated in His image. And if you want to know what the image of Christ looks like, read the Gospels. Read the the epistles. And you'll see, this is what God wants of us. This is what He's going to make us be like. And He is the Lord. And He makes the pots the way He wants to make the pots. We are the dust. He turns us into clay. He makes us and forms us the way He wants And it's only our sinful nature that causes us to say, I don't like it. (laughs) 
I don't like it. Well, God didn't ask our opinion, and He didn't ask Israel's opinion about the way in which He was working in their nation and circumstances. And that leads us then to the second point, God's sovereignty in delivering His people. God's sovereign is absolute, and so God therefore is sovereign in delivering the people Israel. We read in Isaiah chapter 45, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the One who formed Him, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. I, my hands, have stretched out the heavens. That's the way it literally reads. It has, I, I is in an emphatic place in the text. It's right in the very, it's the very first word. I. My hands, and it goes on to say it just that way. I, my hands, have, have, uh, have stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their hosts. I did it. You know, the, in the first verse we read, God didn't have hands and so God is saying, yeah, yeah I do. My hands have done all this. I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free and not for a price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. The hymn in verse 11 is a reference to Cyrus whom God will raise up to deliver his people from Babylon. Now notice what God first of all says about himself. I am the Lord. I made the earth. I created man on it. It was, and the, there's the, my hands is said a couple, couple times. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. I, my hands that stretched out the heavens. I commanded all the hosts. I've stirred him up and I've stirred him up in righteousness. I'm the God. I am sovereign. I'm declaring to you what I'm going to do through this man, Cyrus. He will raise up Cyrus to deliver his people from Babylon. Now notice what God says about Cyrus. He says, I have stirred him up in righteousness. Not, not Cyrus's righteousness, but he stirred him up according to God's righteousness. I've stirred him up. And I will make all his ways level. So Cyrus hasn't even been born yet. God planned his birth and his career um, as a world leader before he was ever born. I mean, that's what we got to... It's either this or we read here Second Isaiah, right? If Isaiah is written as a unity in the 8th century, then Isaiah is saying that God did this some hundred or so years before Cyrus was born. Or there was a second Isaiah and this was really written at the time of the, Babel, at the, time of the exile. That, that's the choices that are, we're faced with uh, by the commentators. There's also, there's also a, a third Isaiah. So you'll know that that's how modern scholars uh, break up the book of Isaiah. But if we're going to accept it as coming from the hand of Isaiah, God speaking through him, then he says, before Cyrus was born, God planned his birth and his career. Now Cyrus is a world leader at the time uh, when he comes to power. Though Cyrus has yet to fight a battle or conquer a kingdom, God determined that he would work so that Cyrus's success would be certain. So what does that mean? Well, it means that God planned equally for the demise of people before the army of Cyrus, right? 
If God's planning for Cyrus to become this world power, this world leader, king, if that's true, then Cyrus had to conquer other peoples. So God is sovereign over those other peoples as well. He's sovereign over the nations. So He raises up one leader who then takes and conquers other people and their leaders fall. Well, was God not involved in their fall? No, He was. Cyrus was the instrument through which God caused their fall. But God is the one who's sovereign. He planned it all. So you see what's going on in our world? Either God's, either God's in charge of it or it's just chaos. The choice is in your hand. The choice, you're, the, the choice is before you. You can say, well, God really isn't sovereign and He wishes things would be different, um, but they're not. And He's kind of changing with history as history unfolds. That's the, that's the view of open theism, as it's called. Um, God, is, God, is, God is kind of evolving with, with creation, and history is being written not by God, but by people and God. And God is sovereign over part of it. You know, like bringing Jesus into the world and, and then coming and bringing the end to the world. But God is not really sovereign over it. He's just waiting to see how things work out. You know, and He's, he's, he's changing. So that's one view of God. The other view is that there is no God. And so all you have then is, is chaos. I think it was Vaclav Havel who said, that um, if we deny, if we deny that there is a God, then there is nothing, there is there is nothing to keep you from murder, killing. There is no morality, and you can't you can't say that there is. If all we are really are cogs on a wheel of evolution, then if it's true that the the survival of the fittest, then if I'm stronger than you. I have, I can, it's, it's proper and it's evolutionary, evolutionarily correct for me to devour you. And if you're stronger than me, if you're, survive, if you're going to survive because you're more powerful, then, then you can have me because that's the way life is. So people who argue for morality and deny God are talking nonsense. And people who deny the sovereignty of God and claim that there's some God of God somehow in control, they're, they're denying God too. And what's going on is not really anything he can really do anything about. He's, he's really just waiting to see what happens. Well, that's not the God of Scripture. He says, I've created it all. And notice... Cyrus will have this career of, and he'll, he'll rise to an authoritative position and, um, and the Persians will conquer the Babylonians and they will take the city of Babylon and then what will happen? Well, God says that Cyrus will accomplish two details regarding God's people. First, he shall build my city. Second, he shall set my exiles free. Now, he's not doing it because he's getting paid to do it. That's what God says. He's not doing it for a reward. 
He's doing it, really, what he did it for was because he, he wanted, he was, he be, Cyrus believed that you needed, to, you needed to pacify all the gods. And so the thing to do is when you had all these people in Babylon that were, you know, they were from different faiths and everything, what you wanted to do was have the favor of all the gods. So what do you do? You send the people back, build their temples so that they could, you know, uh, honor their gods, and then maybe they'll pray for you, and then their gods will help you too. That was really his motivation, but it wasn't for reward or for money or anything. That like was for for his uh, to keep his kingdom, you know, because that's what he believed. At least that's what I understand. So we read about this uh, return of the exiles in Ezra chapter one, verses two through eleven. And you could turn there and read with me if you'd like. Ezra chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We read the decree of Cyrus of Persia. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Notice that. He's the God who's in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now look at this. Cyrus is doing all this for these Jews. He, he wants to take care of these people. Why? Because he wants them to go back to Jerusalem to uh, where God dwells. He's the house of God that's, that's built in Jerusalem. He's there. Then rose up heads of the fathers of houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites. Everyone who's, notice this, everyone whose spirit had been stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Underline that. Everyone whose spirit had been stirred by God, whose spirit God had stirred to go back. God's even sovereign in the... And who goes back to Jerusalem in this first wave? And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels for the, of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithredath, the treasurer, who counted them to uh, Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was their number. Thirty basins of gold, a thousand basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and a thousand other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up with the exiles, um, with, when the exiles were brought from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So, when Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, they took all the valuables out of the temple. And I don't think they were all restored, um, but they restored a lot of them. But they brought them to Babylon. 
and the treasurer kept track of everything that was that they brought back and so Cyrus said okay give it all back and so these people not only are they carrying everything that the people that were around them gave them now they're carrying also the vessels for the house of the Lord these guys are going back with a lot of wealth right and who went back the ones that God stirred he stirred their hearts to go back to Jerusalem well, God is sovereign in world affairs. This is the reason the people of God should never be shaken. Yes, we may suffer. We may even suffer death. But God is in control and God will deliver us either by life or by death. You see, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. The political and social situation of our day does cause concern. Well, do you believe in God? Sometimes the... Friends... I'm not lying to you. Sometimes my faith is shaken. I look around and I do. I have that same attitude that Israel has. God, what's going on? And my faith begins to shake. Well, do you believe that He is God, the Lord, and that He controls all things, even the leaders of our world and the leaders of our country? Do you believe that? America cannot solve her own problems without the Savior. But then on more than one occasion, Barack Obama said we didn't need a Savior. That is the mentality of our country. It's leaders. It's teachers. It's philosophers. But we're not to be shaken. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations will rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the Lord, in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. When I see those words, the Lord our God is with us, I'm reminded of God who is with us. Emmanuel. When Jesus tabernacled among His people, and when Jesus says these words, I am with you even until the end of the age our God is with us therefore we will not be shaken God will be exalted and all the nations of the earth will exalt him in this regard notice the rationale that God uses in Isaiah 45 he says ask me of things to come Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. I, my hands have stretched out the heavens and I commanded their hosts. 
So when the people of Israel are wondering, what are you doing, God delivering us by a form, by, by a Gentile? You know, we're not going to be released from exile. We're just going to be in exile in Jerusalem. And in fact, that's what it was in the first century when Christ came. They were still in exile, but they lived in Jerusalem. Oh yeah, they had their temple, but they weren't free. They were under the, they were under the thumb of Rome, except for so many feet outside of, Jeru- outside of the temple. You could, they had control over that part of their lives, and that was it. Their king was not a Jew. He was, he was Jewish and Intermedian, so he wasn't really their king, and they hated him. They hated Christ more. But God is the Creator. He creates and none can destroy. He moves and none can alter His direction. He speaks and it is so. And that brings us to the third point of our text. The sovereignty of God in saving a people for His glory. Isaiah writes in verse 14 and following, Thus says the Lord, The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, Surely God is in you and there is no other God, no God beside Him. Truly, you are a God who hides Himself. O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. That phrase there in verse 15, in fact, it's verse 15. You could remove it, right? And you would still have the sense of the passage if you just read that. Surely God is in you and there is no other God, no God besides Him. All, all of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion. You see that? You could remove verse 15. What does that tell you? That it's probably a parenthetical thought that Isaiah put in. In other words, Isaiah's getting this word from God and surely God is... In, in the nation of Israel and there is no other God besides Him. And then Isaiah says, Surely you are a God who hides Himself, O God. The Savior? What do you mean hide yourself? There's a mystery involved in what God does. That's what, that's what the New Testament, that's what the first century Jews were missing and that's what Paul kept emphasizing. There's a mystery. Doesn't mean that it's mystery. Doesn't mean that it, you know you got to solve a puzzle. Um, mystery is something that is shrouded, and um, it has to be revealed. So mystery is something that is eventually revealed. And so it seems as though as Isaiah is hearing these words from God, he says, you know, truly you're a God who hi- you you're, you're a God who hides yourself. You're a God who's transcendent, and we don't understand everything. I think that's what he means. Now, other commentators, me, you know, take it another way, and some take it the way I've taken it. But um, the fact is, you can read the passage and pull verse 15 out, and it makes perfect sense. So that tells me that that Isaiah inserted this as a what you might call an editorial comment. Isaiah is saying, "Wow, you know, you're the God of all the earth. All the nations are going to come. I don't understand how this is going to be, God. You're God who." You're God who hides himself. There's some mystery involved in this. And then he goes on. All of them are put to shame. This is God speaking. 
and are confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He's God. Notice that. He's God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. Inhabited with what? Good question. I am the Lord and there is no other. And he goes on and on. Well, there's a lot that could be said of those verses. um, But I just want to draw your attention to three details of the passage. Um, Whether to national Israel or to Israel as understood as the church. So some people see this as referring to national Israel. And some people see this as referring to the church. But either way, okay, however you take it, all people, right, all people, are going to say, surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides Him. And this is so because the Lord who created the heavens and the earth is God. He formed the earth and He made it. He established it. He did not create it. Empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. God is among His people. Though at the time it did not seem to be so, it was true of Israel. It seems less true today. The church seems to be waning. There is so much error and so much division. It seems as though one church divides and another one forms. There are more seminaries in the United States than we are aware of. In one way or another, they all exist as offshoots of seminaries they didn't agree with. So you have R.C. Sproul had his Reformed Bible College. John MacArthur has his Master Seminary. Each denomination has its own schools. Independent churches have their own schools. But though it may seem as though we are all going in different ways, in reality we are not. These churches and these schools are seeking to be faithful to God's Word. That's one thing I think sometimes we miss when we look at division. People are seeking to be faithful to God's Word. And what we ought to do is say, okay, well, they exist to sharpen us. Iron sharpens iron. They all have their own schools, their own churches, and we don't all agree. Not all church- oh, Wouldn't it be nice if everybody, if everybody agreed? Well, I mean, wouldn't that be great? Uh, you'd all agree with me. Oh, I'd love that. But the reality is you don't all agree with me. And when you don't, it's okay. You could sharpen iron. Other churches, they sharpen iron. They make us think more. We could say, yeah, they're wrong. Sure, they're wrong. We we could all agree in here that, you know, um, the church down the street is wrong. But are they seeking something other than the gospel of Christ? If they are, then they really are wrong. If they're preaching another gospel, yes, they're wrong. But they're not preaching another gospel and they just differ with us on our form of government or that we baptize infants or that we have the Lord's Supper every, every weekday. Now, there are Orthodox Presbyterian churches that disagree with us on this issue. Which, by, just as an aside, I have a paper for you guys to read. And you have to tell me if you want. It's written by T. David Gordon. It's a defense of weekly communion. And um, it's one of the best papers I've read. And uh, he was in the OPC. Now he's in the PCA. But he goes to an <coughs> Episcopal church. I don't know all the connection. Anyway, he teaches at Grove City College. Great guy. Love him. You need to read the paper. It's one of the best ones. It's only nine pages. And I think it's one of the best defenses of weekly communion that I've seen. So I'm going to get that to you, but I forgot to print some off this morning. 
come back to the text. Yeah, we all uh, dif- uh, we differ. So we look at this passage, and uh, what we need to remember is that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, created such... Create, he didn't create the earth to be empty. He created it to be populated with people. He didn't create it to be empty. He's filling it. So whether we understand or not, whether we appreciate it or not, God is populating His kingdom, and in that we must rejoice. And it's His kingdom that will populate this earth in the resurrection. And it's not going to be just Orthodox Presbyterians who are there. I mean, if it is, it's going to be a really small population. I, don't, I think we might be 30,000 people, you know. But come on. God's, God is working in other people. I think sometimes we lose that because of our divisions. And we need to not let that happen. God is working, and He is saving a people. We may not have Isaiah exactly down right, but one thing I know is that God is the Lord, there is no other, and He is going to populate His kingdom with His people from wherever they, wherever they are. Egypt, Sabaeans. Sabaeans were, I understand, South Sudanese people, and they were tall. They were, had a they were. They had a stature about them. And what, God is, what, what Isaiah is saying is not so much these people are going to be in the kingdom. Some of them are going to be in the kingdom. But the, the point is that people from all around are going to be in the kingdom of God. It's not just going to be Israel. Okay? And we need to rejoice in that. Second, what I want to bring to your attention is that God's word is certain. He has spoken and he will bring it to pass. By myself I have sworn, verse 23, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To, every me, to, ev- to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now notice that phrase, by myself I have sworn. Does it sound familiar to you? The phrase occurs three times in the Old Testament. And in Genesis 22.16, it's talking to Abraham in Isaiah 45. The phrase refers to salvation and the glory that will accrue for His grace. By myself I have sworn. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear... He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. You will be the father of many nations. Kings will come forth from Sarah. Nations will come forth from her. By myself I have sworn. It's God swearing salvation. Paul refers to that passage in Philippians 2 when he writes, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, that is Christ, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, salvation and glory fit together like a hand and a glove. And indeed for us, they cannot be separated. 
God will be glorified by all the nations of the earth because He's going to save people from every kindred, tongue, and tribe. And all of them are going to come and bow the knee before Christ. I believe the whole world, even unbelievers, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You'll either do it, you'll either do it because God's Spirit has worked in you and you submit to Christ, or you'll do it by you, you'll be comp- compelled compelled to do it. You will have to do it. One way or other, all people will bow the knee to Christ. Well then thirdly, I draw your attention to something that Paul says in Romans. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. That's what Isaiah says. Paul says something similar in Romans. There are some who believe that God finished with national Israel when Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans and the temple was destroyed. So God's finished with His people Israel. Well, I agree that God has finished with Judaism when that happened. And the writer of Hebrews, if you'll read it, makes that plain. The temple system was abolished because Christ fulfilled everything that the temple and the priesthood foreshadowed. So to go back to the temple, to go back to sacrifices as some people think we're going to do, would be be contrary to what the writer of Hebrews says. We would be be reenacting the shadow when we have the reality. It'd be like, you know, putting a picture of Jesus up when Jesus is in the room. You know, and, and uh, you know, and, um, and uh, revering the picture when Christ is sitting right here. It'd be like you when you're in your presence of your wife. You pull your picture out and you kiss, her, kiss the picture goodnight and then go to bed. I mean, think about it. However, I agree with those who believe that God will work a mighty work among the Jewish people. And in the sense that Paul states in Romans, he says this, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Notice, God hides Himself. Let me tell you about this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. All Israel will be saved. What does he mean by that? I believe they're all going to be saved through Christ, through the Gospel, not through the temple system. But I don't believe that God abandoned Jews any more than I believe He abandoned us. The Jewish people are in covenant with Him. They're the covenant people. Paul says that the gifts and and, uh, promises of God are without revocation. So there's a sense in which, yeah, Israel, all Israel is going to be saved. But they're not going to be saved in the way they think. And they're not going to be saved in the way that some Christians think. They're going to be saved through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what's going All of Israel then will be saved. And we, we are part of that. That's why I think that we are the new Israel. Because Christ is really the new Israel. Right? He's the real servant of God. And we are in Him. And our Jewish, our Jewish friends who become Christians, they will be in Him too. And so all Israel be, will be saved. And that's how I understand Paul's words. 
So then we have considered the sovereignty of God is absolute and therefore the sovereignty of God in delivering His people Israel. He used Cyrus even though they didn't understand it. And the sovereignty of God in saving a people for His glory. People from every nation, kindred, and tongue. Well now more could be said. Uh, For example, I didn't even relate Romans 9 to that passage. I didn't talk about God's sovereignty in Romans 9. and uh, So there was stuff I, I missed I didn't talk about. However, let me close with these words of encouragement to all from the book of Hebrews. Because when we read the passage, we, we understand that God's going to deliver His people. We understand that God is going to um, deliver people from all over the world. But the writer of Hebrews says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, which is us, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before him. What were those those two unchangeable things? They were the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15, and they were the oath that God swore to Abraham in Genesis 22. I think that's where it is, 22. Those are unchangeable. What does that mean for us? It means God's promises to save us are not changeable. And so whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. Whether it's hard or it's easy, we are the Lord's. Whether we're rich or we're poor, we are the Lord's. Whether we're healthy or sick, we are the Lord's. Whether we face tomorrow with joy and gladness, or we face tomorrow with the possibility of death. Whether we stand before our loved one like the family of David Haney, and unplug the machine, and wait until he breathes his last. Or whether he is restored and he comes home with us. We are the Lord's. We belong to Him. We're assured of that. And we should take comfort in that. Let's pray. Blessed are You, O Lord our God. We thank You for all that You do for us. We thank You for the assurance that is ours in Christ. We thank You for the book of Isaiah. has many things to say. Many things are passed over. But hopefully the essential truths that we needed for today were brought out. Our God, as we go through today and the rest of our week and in the days to come, may we live in the confidence that you are ours and we are yours. That we belong to Christ and he belongs to us. That whatever he suffers, we suffer. And whatever we suffer, He suffers because we are one with Him.
Grant us the assurance that we often need to persevere, to trust, and to give glory to you. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.